So this is my baseball card from when I was 10. And it says Pinecrest Little League, Sarah Buchanan, number nine. Age 10, height 5 feet, weight 72 pounds. <laughs> Pitcher, bats right. Coach, Ken LaRose. Favorite team, Expos slash Blue Jays. Oh, controversial. Uh-huh. Favorite player, Roger Clemens. My, oh, and then in all caps, it says, My hobbies are reading books and playing sports. Baseball is my favorite sport. I also love animals. Welcome to episode 10 of the Pride House TO podcast. I'm your host, Ellie Gordon Morshill. Pride House Toronto aims to make the 2015 Pan and Parapan Am Games the most LGBTQ inclusive multi sport event ever. And that's about bringing the games to the LGBTQ community and the LGBTQ community to the games. This summer at the Pan Am Games, for the first time ever, women's baseball is included in a big multi sport games. And answering why this took so long is complicated and so fascinating. And on this episode, you're going to hear from two women's baseball historians and one member of Team Canada. But first, let's get back to Sarah Buchanan, who talks about her experience playing baseball as a girl in Ontario. So I started playing t-ball because my brother played and it looked fun. It morphed into Little League Baseball uh, and year after year, there were fewer and fewer girls that were on the team. Uh, just sort of a process of attrition that happened. I pitched for a little while and I played second base. I'd been playing for a while, so I uh, played on the all-star team um, for a few summers, which was really fun. And they asked me to try out and I was really excited. And then it became more apparent that I was really the only girl involved. Started to get teased as it became more apparent and they would just like give me wedgies and tell me I looked weird. And I was also just kind of like an awkward kid anyway. So I think that they could tell and then would, would sort of prey on me. I remember one pitcher, his name was Danny, and he used to uh, try to hit me with the ball whenever he pitched. And he was like the fastest pitcher in the league. Everyone was a little bit afraid of him. But usually my team would often come to my defense. They would take a break from teasing me and come to my defense when a boy on the other team would make fun of me or would uh, say something mean about, you know, there being a girl on their team. So they were able to like switch gears really quickly to defend me <laughs> when someone else was uh, was being mean. In a way, I, f I also felt like if I quit, I'd be proving that girls couldn't do it. But I remember a girl that played on my brother's team, and she was like my hero, and her name was Susie Olzak, and she was the catcher. And she was so cool, she was really good at being a catcher, and she got to wear like the whole catcher getup with like the knee pads and the face mask and everything. And she's one of the reasons that I stuck at it because she kept at it until she was a little bit older. And like, I remember her just being like so much better than my brother also, <laughs> and him being like a little bit embarrassed about that. But it also made me realize that one of the reasons that guys were mean to me is because I was better than a lot of them up to a certain age. And so they were embarrassed that a girl on their team was better. A lot of people would ask me why I wasn't playing softball. And I always wondered why that was i'm like well i'm playing baseball what like i already have a sport that i like why on earth would i go play softball like i'm sure people enjoy softball but i'm playing baseball it would be like asking someone playing you know hockey why they're not playing softball because i'm playing baseball
There's well over a hundred years of history that led to Sarah's struggles in Little League. The tale of women's baseball, like any history of North America, is about the interplay of race, class, gender, sexuality. There was burlesque baseball, women who played in bloomers, women who played in dresses, women who played with men, men who played dressed as women. But first, let's begin just after the Civil War in the United States. Upper-class women had been allowed as baseball spectators in hopes that their so-called higher morality would have a positive influence on the drinking and gambling that was beginning to be associated with baseball. Soon, these rich white women wanted to play, and this posed a cultural problem as both competition and the public domain were gendered as masculine. These were places for men, and men only. So behind the closed doors of the elite East Coast white women's colleges emerged some of the earliest examples of women playing baseball. Here is Marilyn Cohen, author of No Girls in the Clubhouse, The Exclusion of Women from Baseball. So, you know, these, these, these early women's colleges were the place where they could safely, I mean, culturally safely, play baseball. It's supposed to be not competitive. They were, you know, the male gaze wasn't there. They could just sort of exercise. Just started to be recognized that women actually benefited from moving their bodies. I mean, you know, these elite women, they, 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 they sat in the house. I mean, they just, they did nothing. I mean, what, what would distinguish an elite woman's life was leisure. So many of these these young girls who came to college, I mean, their bodies were um, in terrible physical condition. The kind of discourse around health began to shift also in this time period. But it had to be had to be non-competitive. If it was competitive, then somehow their femininity, their sexual purity, all these things they saw as you know, if if, you, if, if, if women were exercising and competitive, somehow their sexuality would be aroused, and that would be a problem. How do we make this? athleticism, you know, benefit their bodies, but not arouse their minds and, and, and sexuality. They, their uniforms, like they wore dresses and blouses, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how they dressed in the 19th I mean, you can't, it's, it's inconceivable to imagine, you know, wearing anything like that when you're playing baseball. But, you know, there were so many larger gendered forces that, that were shaping who they be, what they could be. Um, and so, you know, being associated with um, with feminism wasn't really, even though you want to think that, that really wasn't what they were about. They, they, they tried to reject that uh, by saying, look, you know, we're going to continue to dress in a feminine manner. We're not going to be wearing those bloomers. We, we want to remain modest. Our reputations are of the utmost importance. And, you know, quote, it's unlikely for us to be playing baseball just like the men. And, you know, even though these teams were there, they weren't wildly popular, but they did emerge there. And it's, and it, and it's certainly um, important to note that. So we have the elite white women negotiating playing baseball while keeping their Victorian-era femininity intact. And meanwhile, black and working-class women, straight out of the gate, are not considered feminine or moral because they work outside the home. And in this way, there's some freedom for these women to play baseball in public because their purity is already seen to be compromised by their race or by their class. Which brings us to the Dolly Vardens, a professional African-American women's baseball team. 
They wore red calico dresses as uniforms. One of the astounding things about this group of women is that the team was formed in 1867. This is only four years after the official end of slavery in the U.S. However, there's frustratingly little known about this group of women. I tried really hard to get information about the Dolly Varden. Um, you know, those for the African-American women's professional team in Philly. And that paragraph that I have there is all I could find. Wow. Um, and that's digging through, you know, the, the archives in, in Cooperstown. There's very little known about them. And I think that that's possibly because they were African-American. If I say this Madonna whore dichotomy and feminist theory, I mean, you know, the white women at the at the colleges, I mean, they, they're the Madonnas. They, they're the protected, they're, they're, they're class, they're wealthy, they're, uh, they're modest, there's no male gaze. Those ideas of Madonnas never extended to black women here. They were ex-slaves, they were raped, they were, I mean, you know, their bodies were hypersexualized from the beginning. In the last decade, we've seen the rise and fall of bikini basketball and lingerie football. Men have long tried to make a business of sexualizing women in sports. A baseball club called the Blondes and the Brunettes did just that. Deemed, quote, baseball burlesque by the press, it is thought that in 1875, the Blondes and the Brunettes played the first game of baseball for money between two women's teams. And you know, the Blondes and, blue, and Brunettes were, were white women, but you know, they were also working class women. And you know, working class women were not home and, and, and elite and removed from the male gaze or anything like that. They worked really hard you know, in, in factories. And whenever an association between women working publicly when they were supposed to be privatized, when they were out in public, then they became sexualized. And so here again, we have uh, these blondes and brunettes who were always in the press, baseball burlesque. The the dumb, quote-unquote, done blonde image was was already there. Ridiculous exhibition. I mean, so they were always projected as being stupid, ridiculous kinds of players. But you're right, that they were were paid. What they were paid, I, I, I don't know. And they, for a period of time at least, they did draw a crowd. I'm also, it, like, what were people coming to watch? Did you get a sense of that? I mean, it doesn't seem like it was athleticism, at least for the blondes and the brunettes. No, no. In the beginning, in the beginning when women were playing, it was, it was, compl- it was strictly burlesque. There were you know, these few women that, that start to, um, Lizzie Arlington, Lizzie Murphy, Josie Caruso. I mean, there were some women who, who start to want to play in a, in a real way. That's really going to start to, to happen uh, toward the very end of the century when we start having the Bloomer Girls. Because they were, they were, they were real. I mean, they, they took their athleticism very seriously. Bloomer Girls. As their name suggests, they were bloomers. And if you remember that single paragraph of feminist history you learned in high school, you'll likely remember bloomers. They were those loose-styled pants designed by Amelia Bloomer that allowed for unrestricted movement, something that was unprecedented in women's fashion up to that point. 
Bloomers worked well for baseball. The Bloomer girls barnstormed around the United States and Canada, challenging local men's teams. They were competitive, and they took baseball seriously. Nova Scotian raised Edna Lockhart Duncanson played for the New York Bloomer girls. She learned how to play sports by playing with her 13 siblings in the neighborhood playground. And while she was visiting one of her siblings in New York, she was spotted by a team manager. She ended up playing a hundred games a year, all of them against men's teams. And this was her job. The Bloomer girls teams usually had one or two men on the roster. They were called toppers. In the early years, they dressed as women. Interestingly though, toppers were not billed as entertainment, but it was novel for men and women to play together on the same team. I mean, the reason why the Bloomer girls are so interesting, because there's been nothing like that since. I mean, we have this 1890 to 1935 period. You begin to see some um, loosening of this Victorian ideals around feminine or constructions of femininity, which allowed women to just have all, at least, I mean, remember, this is around the periphery. They're not, we're not talking about Major League Baseball here. These are still these barnstorming teams that were traveling from place to place. In 1920, we have you know, women get the franchise here. So th- we, we have this, this first wave feminist movement that had really started to take, uh, to take shape. And all these cultural forces were at play that gave rise to, to these bloomer girls who were wearing bloomers. And that uh, Amelia Jenks Bloomer was, um, but she had, been, she had fought for women's suffrage. And she was um, a feminist. She, res- she was an advocate for less res- restrictive women's clothing. And they adopted those. And then very soon after, they, they, if you look at pictures of them, um, they're wearing men's uniform. You know, when you when you look at these at this picture, they're very androgynous looking. I um, I know. Yeah. I was blown away by that. I like. <laughs> I mean, I, I, ne- I just was shocked. I mean, you couldn't even tell what gender people were. And I think that that's what was in their minds. I really do. I think that they wanted to be seen as baseball players. They were not interested in being sexualized. They wanted to be seen as serious. And so, the cultural definition of serious would be wearing the uniform that the men would wear. What was so interesting to me about them is that they're they're bisocial. These are mixtures of men and women playing together, which has never, I mean, unless you're talking about Little League, and even here, Little League, that's not very common. You've got men and women playing together. Most, you've got the management of these teams are women. So the men toppers are playing under women's management, they're dressing for a, for a time period like women, and but the men, they know what they're about. They know that they can get some uh, exposure, they can get experience, and that some of them can go on and play um, professional men's baseball. That was never going to be women's option. Nevertheless, you know, these Bloomer Girls teams that barnstormed, they would play against other men's teams, sometimes against black teams, black men's teams. Um, although they were not racially integrated themselves. Sports sociologists like uh, Michael Messner here argue is that when little boys play with little girls on Little League teams, that the little boys gain a respect for little girls' athletic skills. And so here you, you can assume that the men that played, these toppers that played on, these, on, on the Bloomer Girls teams, could recognize the athletic capabilities of their teammates. What's written about the, these teams is there's very little that comes from the men who played it as toppers with those kinds of questions. 
being asked because those are modern, you know, feminist-inspired questions. And I don't think that they were thinking in those terms necessarily back then. But, I mean, I think it's reasonable to assume that the men who played with the women, that, there were, that they had a respect for them. The, the, the managers who also played, they saw their, their women, their women players as athletes. They were proud of their, you know, hard athletic bodies. These, these women were sort of playing on, on men's terms to the extent that they were permitted to. However, they still kept that um, Victorian respectability. Naval had very strict rules about uh, how they could, um, you know, act off when they weren't playing, that the respectable behavior off when they weren't playing, curfews, they had to be ladies after the game, had to change into skirts after the game, couldn't smoke, couldn't drink beer. Um, fired if they were in a pub. All these kinds of things were to re- to to try to maintain delicate balance between being athletic and being a res- and being respectable. Because she knew that these these women were not going to be going on to careers in athletics. They're going to be, for the most part, somebody's wife. You you have a few quotes from some women who who were bloomer girls, and it's interesting in terms of how they saw their gender presentation like there's some woman who's like oh yeah you know we were really strong and sometimes the men would come and feel our strong muscles and stuff like that and you're just like even athletes to female athletes today like have a hard time talking like that it was just before homophobia in sport really took off and the specialized way it is for women now that taking part in like quote-unquote masculine sports is a sign that you're a lesbian or it may turn you into a lesbian that wasn't so solidified back then, which is interesting. It is, and especially because what's happening in terms of the the All-American Girls um, took off, they wanted to separate themselves both from the Bloomer Girls and from the the women's softball players and and to promote a very, very definite feminized, sexualized image. And that was really hard on the women. Yeah, and then and that, that of course is the most familiar part of women's baseball history for that's that's our golden age here. Yeah, exactly. So and and I mean also like you said it like the Bloomer girls had female managers and that was a hundred percent not the case in the all American right. girls professional well, baseball. It was ninety eight percent the case. The woman that I happened to be able to I had the very good fortune of interviewing, um, Tini Petrus. There were a couple of them. They had a hard time keeping those men's managers, men managers. So occasionally a woman would have to step up in that interim period between when one male manager left and another one was hired. So occasionally, and Tini was one of them. And and then you have, I think I pulled this quote directly from your book, the kind of different homophobia that the boomer girls are facing or a much more kind of subtle and complex version anyways the that there's like a quote that says now during the the years you know of the world war ii and right after which is exactly during the period of the all-american girls professional baseball league the stereotype of the lesbian athlete emerged full-blown there there, i mean there still are a few all-american girls that are alive today you know when i would when i would talk to, to teeny petrus that particular topic, you know, whether there were lesbians in the All-American Girls, which of course there were, she wasn't interested in talking about that. As you pointed out, I mean, maybe it's starting to soften a little bit in, in, in our country, but you know, homophobia is, is, is still such a big thing, particularly in, in you know in women's athletics. She she didn't want anything really to do with that topic, although it was a, although I did ask her. 
mean, the All American Girls. What's so what's so sort of frustrating about them from you know the, the 21st century perspective is that you know here was this time period where um, this there was this golden age. You know, women in our country were recruited like crazy into all these um, types of, of, of traditionally men's jobs when the men went across the, to war, went away to war, and so we had this cultural problem once again of women who were defined as being um, of in need of men's protection, of being weaker of mind and body, of being not really up to the level of, you know, being uh, mechanics, of being, you know, uh, whatever the, whatever job, men's job they were filling, and that included, included baseball. But they had to get over that really quick because women were needed. So they had to sort of create this new image of women who were both glamorous in the Betty Grable sense sexy in the Betty Grable sense, and really competent, whether it meant in their minds or their bodies. These players in these ridiculous outfits, their legs, when they would slide, would get chewed up. You know, this this balance between attractive, athletic, and daughters, because they had to be respectable once again. That's why there were no blacks, no black women. We never extended that to black women in this country. Peanut Johnson, who was one of the three women that played the Negro League, she did try to go to a tryout. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Did you ever see A League of Their Own? Yes. And I know exactly which scene you're probably going to talk about, yeah. but can you explain Supposedly, it? Supposedly, that's Mamie Johnson. Supposedly. Oh, really? They're trying to depict her because she, you know, she throws the ball really hard, you know, and uh, I forget who it is that catches it, but, you know, the, you know she, her hand stings because it's been, it, it, the ball's thrown so hard. Um there was so much, there was so much, you know, the, the racism was so, so intense. It was explained that, oh, we can't let black women in because they don't take it seriously. They, they're really not as skilled. Oh, come on. I mean, those three women that played, you know, in the Negro League were tremendous. I have a poster of all three of them on my wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Tony Stone is, is, she's endlessly fascinating, isn't she? Yes. Her story is just begging to be made into a feature film. Make sure to check out Marilyn Cohen's book, No Girls in the Clubhouse. If you're interested to hear more about Toni Stone, the first woman to play baseball in the Negro Leagues, i.e. that woman we were just gushing about, I recommend reading Martha Ackman's biography on Toni Stone. Well, it's come up a couple times, and now we're finally going to address the elephant in the room. Softball. I heard the host of a podcast called uh, New Books in Sport once described trying to sign his daughter up for local baseball online. And after he selected female for her gender, the website automatically signed her up for softball instead. So what's the deal with this? We're going to hear from Jennifer Ring, author of Stolen Bases, Why American Girls Don't Play Baseball. I first asked her about softball's origin. There are two stories. One is that a group of young men kind of young professionals uh, were gathered in the Farragut Yacht Club on Lake Michigan at Thanksgiving to receive the ticker tape reports of the Harvard-Yale football game. Half of them were from Harvard and half of them were from Yale, so there was all sorts of friendly rivalry. And uh, I think Yale won the game, and um, one of the guys 
took a boxing glove that was in the gym and wrapped it around itself and secured it with its laces, which made the first softball. And he threw it at one of the other guys who picked up a, a mop or a broomstick or something and whacked it away from him. And they all thought that was just so much fun. And they started playing with it, you know, and they basically recreated a baseball kind of game in the gym with a rolled up boxing glove and a broomstick. And um, they called it indoor baseball, indoor baseball, so that you couldn't go breaking windows. So it was just, you know, softball. And then the guys started calling it kind of demeaning feminine names like Nancy Ball, Sissy Ball, Panty Waste. That was to distinguish it from baseball, which was the manly game. You know, they wanted everybody to know this was just, you know, fun, fluff. Um, and and then the other story is that, you know, a year or two later, uh, a guy named Charles Rober, who was the chief of the Minneapolis Fire Department, was trying to keep his firefighters fit during the winter, and it was hard, and they had medicine balls and all sorts of calisthenics, but the guys were bored. And so he invented a similar game as a way to keep his men moving around inside. So, you know, those are the official origins of softball. It became feminized because baseball was being promoted as such a masculine game. It sounded like it was quite explicit, like the official histories describing baseball, and I think in the first kind of origins of Little League as like, this is a manly sport. Like it wasn't even kind of just subtly implied, like that was the, the language they used. It was really explicit. When they, when they founded Little League in 1939, I guess it was, they put in its charter that this was to engender the qualities of um, sportsmanship, citizenship, and manhood in little boys. And they explicitly excluded girls. And uh, then there had to be a series of lawsuits uh, 35 or 40 years later. And when the girls or the National Organization for Women actually was the one that sued on behalf of the little girl who had been playing in Hoboken, New Jersey, Maria Pepe. And when the Little League organization found out that she was playing, they told the coach that he had to drop her from the team or his team would be kicked out of Little League. They used the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which has an equal protection clause, and they won. And uh, the New Jersey Little League's response was to shut down Little League for a year rather than let girls play with boys. If girls can play, then no one should be able to play? Right. Uh, they claimed it was insurance. They couldn't insure the girls who were sure to get hurt. <laughs> I mean, you know, and it, was, it was just, uh, you know, the language is just astonishing when you read the court cases. But really, I think it's just as complete phobia about girls and boys playing together and 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 there were some people who some men and their sons who were pretty far-sighted um at the time as, as a whole you know i mean obviously it was a big furor and it was in sports illustrated frank deford wrote a really good article at the time in in the early 1970s 1973 i think in sports illustrated you know where he said the real danger is is that a girl might beat a boy and um, that's what every that's what the men were all afraid of is that their sons would get shown up by girls. Even if you want to be a jerk and and say our whole world will be turned upside down if a girl is better than a boy, 
why can't they play their own game of baseball? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to sex segregate, why do you have to sex segregate them into an entirely different sport? In Canada, Canada. there's kind of um, a quote unquote like feminized version of ice hockey called ringette. I don't even I don't know it very well, but you kind of you don't have a blade on your stick and you have a ring and you kind of push around the ring. But anyways, I mean the thing that's interesting, ringette, as far as I know, was created in the 60s and 70s explicitly to put girls into um whereas uh softball kind of just conveniently had already had this reputation as being like a lesser than sport to to baseball and so is that kind of what happened it sort of it was like it was convenient for what they wanted to try and and do in terms of removing women from playing baseball i mean and women had been playing baseball since it was invented essentially I think it was just it was a diversion, and girls, as you know, have have always played baseball. But you know, the kind of institutionalization of softball just siphoned girls away from baseball, and it's never been the same. As you point out multiple times in your book, like there's nothing inherently masculine about baseball, and there's nothing inherently feminine about softball, and you well, have like, you know, as softball has evolved. Most of the girls that I interviewed, whether they chose softball or refused softball, said, um, I don't like standing. I mean, it's harder. You stand there 45 feet away or 43 feet away from a pitcher who is throwing 70 miles an hour and it's it's harder to hit you know it's it's harder to hit the ball and it feels like it's faster and um you know i mean some of them were just joking like hell no i'm not going to stand that close to a pitcher so it's you know i mean it's evolved into a game why shouldn't playing with a big hard ball at close range be more masculine if they wanted to you know spin it that way you know what i mean like men's softball is at the pan am games it's been uh, you know, international sport, and you have those male players, people just being suspicious of them. Well, why aren't you playing baseball? Yeah, right, exactly. You know, my work is really centered on American baseball and America's kind of wrong-headed insistence that they invented the game. I mean, that was another myth from Albert Spaulding. It was probably English children who invented the game. You know, it's like at any time it's associated with national identity, it has to be associated with masculinity. And so it, it seems to me, and I, you know, this is just my theory. I haven't really done the research, you know, the kind of comparative research, but it seems to me that the more closely a sport is associated with, you know, as the national sport, the national identity, the more fiercely it's held to be masculine and masculine only. I, I think that that's a pretty sound theory. So the last thing I want to ask you is, you, could you tell me again about um, the paper you presented in Cooperstown really recently? This is for the um, Cooperstown Symposium on Baseball and American Culture. Um, and I really was one of the very few women at the conference this year. Usually there's a little bit more. But, uh, and the paper was um, called The Mo Things Change, um, Exceptionalism in Girls Baseball in the United States, I think was the subtitle. Um, and I talked about, you know, I tried to situate Monet, um, you know, first of all, to to talk about the extraordinary media focus on her. You know, she had her own base, her, her own commercial during the World Series for Chevrolet, 
you know, saying, uh, you know, talking about I throw 70 miles an hour and that's throwing like a girl. And I mean, it's all great stuff. Um, she threw out the first pitch of the Dodgers game and was introduced by Queen Latifah. So, I mean, that's extraordinary for a 13-year-old girl who won a Little League game. You know, it's just, so what I was talking about is, well, this is great, but what does it mean? I mean, does it really talk about embracing girl athletes? Is, is this a sign that things are turning for the better? Or is it more of the same stuff, which is you find one girl who plays with boys, and that is what makes her special. Not that she's a great girl athlete, and certainly don't pay any attention to women's baseball just look at this one girl who remains kind of an individual athlete um in that sense um because she's a solitary girl playing with boys and nobody is really afraid like they were with jackie robinson and racial integration that she's going to open the floodgates of girls to take over the national pastime you know for every monet that crops up every few years and she certainly is is uh you know the most celebrated in in recent memory, there are all these other girls that are just ignored because they play with girls um, or they play with boys and they go further. They get to high school or they're, you know, I think embracing her because she says, I, I, I want to play basketball. I don't want to play baseball. So it's not like she's out there. She, sure, she talks about being a great athlete as an adolescent girl. Um, and there are a lot of men still on the Internet saying, yeah, but she can't move up to a big diamond. I, you know, I know she can if she wants to. The safer path is to say, I'm going to play basketball. In terms of right now, the only way she could make money playing sports, she probably knows that, too. Oh, yeah. I, no, absolutely. No, she's not. She's not a, you know, she's not a, a feminist pioneer. She's a talented girl athlete. She doesn't have to be a, a feminist pioneer. Yeah, I remember someone getting her to comment on some sort of really sexist comment that some male baseball player had made. I don't remember what the comment was, but I was just like, why are you asking her this? Like, she's 13. Like, don't put this on her shoulders that she needs to respond yeah. to sexism in culture as a whole. Like, oh, my gosh. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, and, and the women in my book, in a game of their own, all said that, too. It's like, could you just shut up and let me play? And at the same time, most of them also said, every time I get up that in this sport, I feel like I'm representing all women. And that, of course, was Jennifer Ring, author of Stolen Bases, Why American Girls Don't Play Baseball. Her latest book is called A Game of Their Own, which includes oral histories of 11 members of the U.S. women's national team. But now, we're going to hear from someone going up to bat for Canada this summer at the Pan Am Games, Nicole Lachansky. She started playing on Canada's women's national team at age 16, and she has competed in five World Cups. So first of all, I just want to know, like, what's your what's your origin story for baseball? Like, how did you start playing? So I started playing Little League. Uh, when you start, you're just in T-ball, and there's quite a few girls and boys all mixed together. And then you go to coach pitch, and the coach just kind of lobs it at you. And again, there's a large mix. Um, and then when you're about eight or nine, then it goes to player pitch. So that's when you decide to go to either baseball or softball. And uh, it's kind of funny, like, I don't really remember exactly why when I was eight years old I picked baseball, but I do distinctly remember my parents asking me which one I wanted to go into instead of just telling me I had to go into softball. So I stayed in baseball, and there was always a few girls uh, sprinkled around, and 
those girls get rounded up and we make a provincial team that goes to an all-women's national. So it's it's interesting because you, you kind of play with boys throughout your season, but then the culmination of the season is always a women's tournament. So when And then when I was uh, 14, the women's national team was formed and came into existence with the Women's World Cup officially starting. So then it was definitely my goal to make that team, and I was never going to quit it once that happened. Do you remember um, why you picked baseball as a kid over softball? Uh, I remember just really liking the sport right off the hop and being involved in it and seeing it on TV and wanting to play and the way that the small ball fit in a small hand was just way easier to throw than a big softball. Um, I liked the uniforms. I liked wearing the pants and the hat and I didn't mind playing with the boys and it just fit and my brother, my older brother played and I liked my organization so there was just really no lure for me to leave. I've interviewed a number of athletes over the years and definitely you know, quite a few hockey players and the experience has is similar to what you say except what happens is usually after kind of age 18 or something, especially if it's kind of younger players, they end up playing in women's leagues um, and then they, or they end up playing university or they end up playing in the States and they end up just playing with women after a certain age bracket, but that doesn't seem to be the case with baseball, you said, except for these kind of uh, tournaments that uh, culminate the end of the years or certain times of the year. Yeah, it is really interesting that way, and that's just a marker of the fact that our sport still has to grow. Um, it has come a long way to even have all women's events, and but now, so even when we have the national team, which is awesome, uh, we're not centralized throughout the year. We're only together for our summer event. So leading up to that, wherever you are in the country living, you just have to find a team to prepare with and practice with. And there's not really enough women playing yet that there's women's leagues in Edmonton and Calgary and Vancouver. So you just have to jump in with a men's or a boys team. And generally, they're pretty good about it. You can find one that's your level. And um, sometimes for us, that means playing against high school-aged boys because generally I found that um, elite women are are sort of equal to an elite high school boys' size and strengths and ability. So um, we put our women's provincial team in the Midget Double A League in Alberta. So we have a women's team playing in a boys' league, and I know Ontario and Quebec do that as well. Uh, but yeah, just generally you have to find a place to play, but it's worth it for us because we love the sport, and now we have these goals to look up to that we want to be in the Pan Am Games and be at the World Cup, which are all women's events. But training with guys throughout the year only prepares you better for playing with all women later. I mean, it sounds like you come from a really supportive community and family. Has there been any challenges around being one of the few girls that played baseball when you were playing in your younger years? Uh, nothing out of the ordinary. Like, it's definitely awkward, um, embarrassing at times, and, you know, it's hard to be friends with everybody on the team. But I, I've actually had a pretty good experience. I've never had anyone outright bully me or say to me, like, you shouldn't be here. It's just things you hear behind your back, right? And the rumors and things come around, but that kind of happens in life regardless of what you're doing. So um, it's been pretty good. It's definitely hard. Like I've never really been accepted by my whole team, whichever boy team I'm on, but there's always been a few guys on the team who are really good, like awesome and encouraging. So it's, it's, it's definitely been a battle. I think it has been for all of us who have done this, but in the end, I think we'd all agree it's made us way stronger and more resilient and 
way more able to go into any social situation and not be scared of not fitting in and just doing it. So the 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 National Women's Program has been around, you said, for like, what is that, like t- 10 or 11 years? Uh, yeah, 11 years. It started in 2004. Okay. So I, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but like, I didn't even know there was a women's program. And I imagine that that comes up a lot in your life of being like, oh, you're in Team Canada. I didn't even know there was a, a baseball program. Do you have any sense of why it took so like why baseball particularly has taken so long for women's programming to be supportive. It's it's kind of surprising to me that it, it's it's moved even slower than sport like ice hockey. Yeah, and it is. I, we, me and my teammates question that a lot of the time. We wonder. Um, I would. My number one answer would be the fact that women's softball exists and is so popular. And it's not a knock against softball. Softball is an awesome, challenging sport, for sure. But the fact that at some point this sport was invented, baseball was invented, softball was invented, and somewhere along the line society decided that one gender was going to play one and one gender was going to play the other has obviously impacted women's baseball. Because like you said, girls don't even know. So if you don't even know you have the chance, then that's a problem right from the start. And if you do know, but you know that you're going to be the only girl in the league and you're going to be trying to make the women's national team, but it's going to be hard playing with boys until you make it. So you know, you might just say, ah, oh, whatever, I'll just play softball instead. Or you might actually just love softball and want to go for it, and that's fine too. But the fact also that women's softball has exploded in the U.S., like there's so much college uh, opportunity, sponsorships, scholarships, um, TV coverage now so definitely the popularity of softball is a barrier and I don't I don't want to ever give the impression that I think softball should suffer or go away because it's a great sport but I just really want us to be able to show girls that if they do want to play baseball and that's the one that they want to choose then they should be able to go that way. If I'm right I read somewhere that you got funding to be able to train full-time but I imagine that that's been probably a bit of a struggle for the the national team for people to have enough funding or support to be able to train as much as you need to to stay at a really elite level. Yeah, it definitely is because um, we don't we don't have carding like we're not eligible to be carded athletes. Um, <clears throat> so we definitely get funding from Sport Canada, which filters down into Baseball Canada, which is awesome because that means that when we go to the World Cup in Japan or wherever, it's all covered. So. Nobody has to pay to be on the national team in any way, which is great, which means you can take the best players. But as soon as you get home and the off-season starts, you're totally on your own. So it has definitely been a challenge. Um, I received funding through CIBC Team Next, which is great because I never would have had that opportunity if we weren't in the Pan Ams. They're the title sponsor of the Pan Ams, so they chose basically an athlete for every sport. Um, So it's been great, and that, along with saving up from where I was working before, I was able to just quit my job and just train for the six months leading up to the Games. But I'm the only person on our team who felt financially able to do that. So everyone else is either in school or working. And I mean, it goes to show, like, of course, there's just many, many girls and women that just would not be in that position, period. And Like, I feel very fortunate to be able to even do this for even six months of my life. And it's for sure a struggle in the sport and I hope that with our exposure in the Pan Ams that we get a little more support and some more media attention and draw in a few more resources. Is there is there anything else you want to talk about or anything in particular you're excited about leading up to the Pan Am Games? Um, I'm really excited 
fact that baseball and softball are all in Ajax, and baseball and softball both have a men's and women's component. Because uh, actually, we I met one of the other athletes on CIBC team next, the, the softball player, and uh, he's been playing softball his whole life, and is like the flip side of my story, where people always ask him, "Well, why don't you play baseball?" But he loves softball, and men are really good at it, and Canada is really dominant actually in men's softball. So it's really cool that people are going to be able to just come down to Ajax and pay their park pass or whatever and then just watch as much baseball and softball as they want and maybe see some some side of it that they haven't been used to seeing like women playing baseball and people love it like i've never ha- i've never told someone i play baseball and then they just go oh that's stupid usually people go oh i didn't know but that's really cool and, and they like to see it so i think it's going to be great and i hope that any girl who has been interested, watched the Jays growing up, and always wanted to play, knows that there's a place for them in baseball if they want to. Thanks for listening to the Pride House Teal podcast, and I hope you join me in Ajax to watch some baseball games in July. I called this episode the story of women's baseball, but really it was more like the Coles notes. There is so much information I couldn't fit in and people I wasn't able to reach in time to interview. So I hope you learned something and share the episode with friends and families and teammates. Thanks to Sarah Buchanan, Marilyn Cohen, Jennifer Ring, and Nicole Lachansky for taking part. The Pride House Toronto Project is funded by the Ontario Trillium Foundation, the City of Toronto, and the Government of Ontario with support of our lead partner, CIBC. The 519 is proud to serve as a trustee of Pride House TO, providing organizational, staff, and financial resources to ensure the success of the project. The Pride House TO team extends its thanks to everyone who contributes to ensuring there is a place for all in sport. Pride House Toronto, um lugar para todos no esporte. Para saber mais, visite-nos na internet, pelo Facebook ou pelo Twitter, pridehousetoronto.ca.